Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah 38. Isaiah 38, while you're turning there, I would remind you, this book's written by Isaiah, but the, the primary author is the Lord Himself, the Spirit of God, and as a result, uh, has all of the fullness of the wisdom of God as He's authored it. And because He exists outside of time and space and matter and energy, and he writes this with all things present, so he writes this to you, so that we're comfortable saying that this is God's word for you today, authoritatively and declaratively delivered unto you. Please hear the reading, the word of God. In those days, Hezekiah became sick. Was that the point of death? And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. And Hezekiah turned his face to the wall, prayed to the Lord, and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness, and with a whole heart and done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15, your, 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz. Turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial 10 steps by which it had declined. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I'm consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord of the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on no man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent, like a weaver I've rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion he breaks all my bones. From day to night you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane I chirp, I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O oh Lord, I'm oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O oh Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O oh, restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction 
For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me. We'll play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Let's pray. Father, yet again, creatures of dust, handling things that are too wonderful for us. Your very word from on high. In our frailty, would your spirit be strong? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Do you have a friend like this? I think probably many of us do, maybe most, if not all. Maybe the little ones don't yet. But that friend that has a theory for everything. It does not matter what topic you bring up. They have an opinion on the matter that's been well thought out and have a theory on it. Whether you bring up whether cheating is prolific in NASCAR, they'll have a theory on that. Or whether or not ballet can convey appropriate amount of meaning. I don't know, but they have a theory on that. Have a theory on which type of fishing is best? To a theory as to why Mexican food isn't Mexican food or some other nonsense. They have a theory on everything. And if you have that friend, I, I have a couple of them. It doesn't matter which topic. Sometimes it's fun to kind of poke at it. See the extent of their thought. Why ice skating is incredibly difficult but not a sport to see if they've thought through that, to uh, see the extent of their mind, the extent of their reasoning. It's always fun. Periodically, you stumble into something, you're like, wow, I can't believe any human has thought about this before. But apparently you have. You've got a category for it. You've got a a philosophy of it. You've got it fully reasoned out. Now, obviously, I kind of poke fun at that character because many of us have that friend. Some of us are that friend. Yeah, I knew you would have that friend, all of you. The opposite is actually a significant problem. To go through all of life where we've not thought about anything. To go through life really like it's happening to us and to have kind of no systematized or categorical approach to the things that hit us. That's in many ways so much like the animals where we just respond by instinct. It's like we we haven't thought about things. We haven't thought through things. And when they happen to us, that's when most often it feels like our our legs are cut out from under us and we get confused and we're kind of, those moments we're like, what is happening and going on? Because we haven't thought through the categories for what's happening. I would humbly suggest, as a young man, that many of us probably have not done fully, appropriately, or enough 
really thinking through the category of suffering or perhaps even the category of impending death. Now, I recognize some of you other saints in the room who perhaps are older or perhaps have had uh, extended bouts of illness or mystery times where you almost died randomly. Uh, You've maybe perhaps spent time thinking through these categories, but many of us have not. We we actually haven't spent the energy uh, just to fully kind of wrap our mind around a theology of suffering, a theology of dying. Isaiah chapter 38 does similar to kind of what we did last week, where last week we looked at how we kind of jump the gun and jump to the end of the book and miss out on all of the kind of things in the middle. We face a similar temptation in chapter 38 to jump from verse 1 really to verse 27 and miss all of the interesting and difficult bits in the middle. And in doing so, miss the opportunity to think through a theology of suffering, a theology of sadness, a theology of grief. It starts in a grim place. Chapter 38, verse 1, this is the way that Isaiah records it. It's recorded slightly uh, in a different poetic fashion uh, in 2 Kings chapter 20. Starts in verse 1 with Hezekiah becoming sick, and he's not little, like, this is not little sick, this is big sick. Hezekiah suspects he's probably dying. Uh, It's a bad thing. If you've ever had something more than a stomach bug, you might know this point where you're like, ooh, this is it. I I I ran a good race. It's it's about to be done. My time's over. And then he has that uh, incredibly awkward moment that most of us don't get, which is the prophet of God walking into him verse 1, and saying, yes, you are sick, and yes, you feel like you're going to die, and you're right. You got it figured out, buddy. You nailed it. Isaiah says to him, verse 1, thus says the Lord, set your house in order. You will die. You will not recover. That's it. It's over. It's finished. Your time in this place is finished. It's done. It's done. You're going to die. Now, some of us have had that moment where a doctor looks us in the face, tells us it's the end of our time, tells us it's the end of our road, tells us it's the last of our days on this mortal coil. Some have not, but likely will. Friends, I can tell you, it's, it's... it's not the most fun conversation to get. It doesn't feel the best. You immediately go to the hundred things that are unfinished, the words unsaid, the thoughts unthought, the deeds undone. It's not time yet. with profound sorrow. And I love how verse 2 explains exactly what it looks like in real time. You 
you have the grown man, the king of Israel, rolls over to the wall and begins to weep. His weeping doesn't just remain with himself, but verse 3 puts words to his tears. Honestly, they're not really great words if we're going to be truthful. Please, O Lord, remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and done what is good in your sight. I mean, candid, it's not really a great prayer. Hezekiah is a a mixed bag, so to speak. He's perhaps one of the most human kings that we get to see. He has moments of brilliance and moments of beauty, and he has moments of mess. And praise a prayer that I think many of us in our right minds don't really feel comfortable with. When we're thinking clearly, the idea of going before the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm not done yet because I've lived a good life because you've done this thing. I mean, it's really intriguing. He's the subject of his prayer. I've walked before you. I've done good. And it ends with this, again, such a human perspective. Hezekiah weeps bitterly. This is not the uh, Hollywood movie kind of cry where he stands there perfectly in the rain with the one absolutely perfectly sculpted tear that you know perfectly dribbles down to the jawline and then runs and drips and is just magnificently elegant. We have a man who breaks. Verses one through three are one of those gripping and gruesome portraits of sorrow and grief. It's a perfect portrait of sadness, of impending loss, missed opportunities the end. I love how God in his word captures the human experience so wonderfully and puts words to what we feel, puts better words than we're able to say ourselves, put others in our places so that we can relate and understand the overwhelming sense of sorrow. And the rest of the chapter really kind of answers the question, what is God doing in the midst of sorrow like this? What is God doing in the midst of grief like this? What is God doing through it all? Well, there's a lot of things. I'm going to try to cover them somewhat quickly. Probably not, though, if you've been listening to any of my sermons. 
What does it do? Well, interestingly, we've already seen kind of the first byproduct of the Lord kind of ordaining this grief for this man, the Lord ordaining this sorrow for this man. Already the king's heart has been returned to the Lord. He's, he's weeping and praying. He's gone back to God. He's, he's not weeping before his doctor. He's not even weeping before his prophet. He's rolled over and is pleading with the Lord. Now, it's broken. It's not the perfect prayer. It's not one that you're going to, you know, be excited about later once you're in a clear mind. <laughs> but he's brought his sorrow to the King of Kings. And to the Lord of Lords. It's intriguing that that right there, that's an opening benefit to sorrow, just in its own right. It has this kind of corrective nature to it to take our minds and kind of force them into looking into the throne room of the King of Kings. In fact, actually, It has a way of, sorrow has a way, grief has a way of doing this in a way that happiness can't. Joy and gladness are are such easy emotions where it's so easy for us to, to to be preoccupied and captivated by the thing that's giving the delight. Some of you, it's food. It's so easy to be captivated by the, the delicious flavor of the food the sweetness of dessert. Others, it's the the joy of laughing together with friends and it's so easy to be captivated by the friends and it's good to think of those things. But it's so easy for our eyes to be fixed on the joy instead of the God who's ordained that joy. It's one of those great gifts that sorrow tends to do is that it tends to place its finger below our chin and force our heads up to think of the Most High. Many of times we're we're already in a bad place when that's happened spiritually or emotionally and we'll end up praying prayers like Hezekiah. But it's intriguing. God's already explaining. He's not wasting the difficulty. He's using it. In fact, verse 4, Isaiah doesn't highlight the, the full story we hear in Kings, but the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah. The Lord listens. So already, grief is doing its, its purpose. It's having a harvest of fruit of already, first of prayer, even from the king, but then also in showing the Lord's love that he listens the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah so that Isaiah will go and speak to him. Now, we find out in 2 Kings chapter 20 exactly when that is. Isaiah goes to the king and says, king, you're gonna die. God's gonna do it. This is the end. Get your affairs in order. And he leaves. And as he's walking out of the king's chamber and then through the castle and out through the courts and getting ready to go out into the city, Hezekiah rolls over and he begins to weep and plead with God. And God answers his prayer before Isaiah makes it out of the castle. Before he makes it out of the palace, he's in the middle courts when the Lord speaks to him and says, go back, go back. Okay, (laughs) all right. 
Isaiah goes back and says to the king what we hear in verses 5 and 6. Now, the interesting thing here is that the Lord again is displaying his love because he not only answers the request that Hezekiah has for himself, but he actually answers the bigger request that impacts the bigger nation as a whole, the people of God as in their entirety. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, the covenant-keeping God, the one who has made covenant with your family, the one who has kept covenant forever. I've heard your prayer, weak and slightly rotten as it is. I've seen your tears, honestly, as self-centered as they are. And behold, I will do something for you. I will answer this very poor prayer, this slightly self-centered man, with 15 years of additional life. And, oh yeah, by the way, verse six, I'm gonna deliver your entire nation out of the king of Assyria's hands, and I'm gonna defend the city. Don't worry about it. As best we could tell, this is 702. Uh, We actually know the exact kind of right time in history that's happening, 702 uh, B.C., And we know what's going on in this is the Lord is answering not just this prayer for health, but the bigger need at hand. And I love that. What's actually, again, kind of, you're seeing the Lord use the grief for is to, to take Isaiah's chin and to force it to look into the throne of grace to see the covenant keeping God and how he keeps his promises and to showcase his love. And then what does he do? That covenant-keeping God listens and then answers. It doesn't just answer the exact words. It doesn't just answer in the small and tiny way, but answers above and beyond, bigger and greater. It's Ephesians 3, beyond what we could ask or even imagine. Right? Too often, uh, we tend to think of our God as Um, that kind of vindictive, mean-spirited, conniving sort of genie where we ask for things, but we try to word our prayers very carefully so that he can't be mischievous in how he answers. My favorite illustration is some of us are, we're we're so careful, we're afraid that if we ask for a million bucks, our house is going to look like Tiga K with deer everywhere. And so we parse out our prayers so, so very narrowly and so very carefully because we want God to do it exactly our way. And it's interesting that when we ask God to do it our way, we're asking for a lesser option. Right? If God had done it Hezekiah's way and only Hezekiah's way, he would have answered Hezekiah's prayer for life and extended his life. And Hezekiah would have lived just long enough for the king of Syria to come in and kill him. But instead, God's actually doing something much bigger, something much greater, something much more wonderful, something much more grand, in that he's extending the king's life, but also giving safety, not just to the king, but to the entirety of the people of God. Something much better. Something much more wonderful. I mean, honestly, if we were, 
If we were to get our way every time we prayed, it pretty much would have ruined any opportunity for redemption at all. I mean, you think about it, the disciples there, knowing that King Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross probably the next day, he's in the garden praying, and you know they're all praying that the Lord would stop that. You know that when Christ was about to be crucified, they're all praying that God would stop that. But the Lord's wiser. He's much more clever. He doesn't stop the crucifixion. Because if the Father had stopped the crucifixion, we all die forever. We stay in our sins. He was doing something much bigger, something much greater, something much more wonderful than even the disciples were able to understand, than even Hezekiah was able to understand. He's at work for the good of his people. Now, honestly, sometimes, friends, some of us, some of you in here, grow discouraged because you don't see your prayers answered right away. Sometimes you don't see them answered at all, or at least it seems that way. And actually, this is where your answer lies, is that when you don't see your prayers being answered this way, if you are a child of God, the reason being is because you're praying for something too small. The benefit is too small. You're you're praying for Hezekiah's life to be extended, but for the kingdom to be destroyed. You're praying for Christ to be removed from the cross, but redemption not to be accomplished or applied. You're, You're praying for something that is too small and not beneficial in the long run. Because all of this, the Lord is displaying that he loves his children. And not with that kind of guarded love that some of us interact with where people kind of say they love us but keep us at arm's reach where you kind of, the Lord throws up it's an open-armed love a love that cost him something he answers prayers verse 6 and 7 bigger and better than what Hezekiah even would have known to to ask for or had the courage to ask for, certainly in that moment, he wouldn't have had the, the ability to even kind of be that far-sighted. But then in verses seven and eight, the Lord is so kind. Again, loves his king so much, loves his child so much, that he accounts for his frailty. As we've already sung, child of dust, feeble and frail, He accounts for the king's kind of wavering faith, hot one day, cold the next, and even gives him a sign, volunteers. We find out in 2 Kings that the sign is given so that the king is able to choose which way the uh, sun moves on the sundial. He chooses back. But to give a, a, a picture for the king so that the king would be reminded that the Lord loves you. And anytime you doubt that, just look. Go look at the sundial. Anytime you doubt, forever and ever, go look. There's a portrait in front of you to remind you that God loves you. That he's working for your good, that he cares for you even if you can't see it in the moment. Now, that would be incredibly kind of cool if we still had this sundial, but spectacularly inconvenient. 
As most of us have not had the opportunity to travel to Jerusalem, we might in our lifetime, but only once, most of us. So we need a different sign, actually. We need something besides Ahaz's sundial for us to look at, to be reminded that God loves us. And in fact, actually, he gave us something different. Not just a, a sundial to look at, he gave us a meal. So that every time we go to the table, we can remember that the Lord loves his people so much that he sent his only son to the cross to die an undeserved death. Well, for him, (laughs) very deserved for me. To die in my place or your place, to satisfy the wrath of God in its entirety. And so that if I ever doubt that God is out for my good, I have a table that reminds me Jesus died as proof of that. Jesus died to accomplish that. Jesus died so that every promise of God would be yes and amen in the Lord Jesus and I would be the recipient of his blessing. So that even, in fact, we could say your life right now is a life of blessing. It's either a life of blessing where the the fruit is on the vine and we're getting to see all of the the rich harvest of God's blessing, or (laughs) for some of us, actually, it's the season where the dirt is being tilled. It's the part of, now, I can't do farming illustrations, that's Brandon's job, but from what I understand how that works, at least with Carolina clay, you have to break it up really hard. Right? You don't just kind of scrape open a hole in the ground and put a you know, plant in it and assume that plant's going to do well. You have to break up the soil around it so that the roots can grow and it can, it can get out. And I'll tell you this, breaking up Carolina clay soil is no fun. I mean, you're probably not doing it with a shovel. You need a pickaxe to start, right? Try to get some sort of foothold into the soil to kind of get things moving. Or perhaps some tiller that, you know, will do it for you. It doesn't feel good. It's not fun. But it's still part of the process of producing fruit, of producing vegetables, of producing the delightful things that we like to eat. The soil has to be broken up to be useful. Some of us are in those seasons where we can see the Lord's blessing very easily. It's a a season of joy and delight. It's a season where we look around and say, surely this is the land of, of plenty. It's milk and honey everywhere. The Lord blesses upon blessing, upon blessing, upon blessing. Praise God for you people. If you're in that category, please be an encouragement to those that are not. Because I guarantee you, you're sitting on the same row with somebody who's currently experiencing the tiller of God's work, who's got the pickaxe of God breaking up the red clay of their soul, of their life, of their very existence. And friends, if you're one of those happy people that have fruit everywhere, (laughs) the tiller of God's work does not feel good in the moment. It is good. It is kind. It is loving but it is not pleasant. 
but no less a blessing. The sign is given in verses seven and eight to encourage the king. The table is given to encourage the saints so that we do not grow weary in doing good or grow weary and forget that the Lord loves his people. We just might be under the tiller for a time. The passage ends kind of the narrative part and what we have kind of interjected here is a psalm of reflection that the king pens after he had recovered from sickness. It's his kind of contemplation of what it was like to be on his deathbed. These are the reflections of a dying man who didn't die. And what does he do? He begins in explaining exactly what it feels like to be under the hand of God, to be under the tiller of God, to be in that place where life is being broken up and broken apart. And I, I find it so refreshing in verses really 10 through 16. He's not hiding from how painful it is. He's not, he's not running from the difficulty. He's not in that kind of southern world where you have to pretend like everything is, is just perfect. He's not acting like it doesn't hurt. He's not putting on that British stiff upper lip. He's acknowledging it was terrible. It was awful. It was the worst. It was the worst of the worst. And because he knew all along it was God that was doing it. It was the Lord that was going to pluck him up and take him away. I think, though, perhaps the most refreshing of them all is the king answering in verse 17. I think it's the the most important verse in the chapter. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. He's actually teaching us how suffering works for the people of God. He's teaching us that if you are a child of the king, if you are a member of the kingdom of Christ Jesus, he's teaching us why we have difficulty and what it does. This is our our theology of suffering. It was for my welfare that I had bitterness. It was for my welfare that I had difficulty. It was for my welfare that I had tears. It was for my good that it hurt, that it was miserable. Now here he's not just talking about his near-death experience at this point. It's been kind of largely expanded to the difficulty of being a king, the king of Assyria, invading in the whole kit and caboodle. It was for my welfare that all of these hard things happened, all of these painful things happened. Why? Because in love you worked. This is a statement, a a, a confession of faith, a proclamation, a declaration of the character of God. It was for my good that you did this. Why? Because you love me. 
Not some mischievous God, some villainous God, some up-to-no-good sort of God. It's for my good because you love me kind of God. And in fact, you love me so much, you've delivered my life from the pit of destruction so I didn't die. Hmm, Convenient. But then he expands and goes, actually, no, just not dying isn't enough. You love me so much that you actually did the bigger thing, the greater thing, the more important thing. You cast all of my sins behind your back. It was almost reminiscent of Christ in the Gospels where he's asked the question, he's like, which is more impressive? To heal a man or to forgive sins? Which is more important, to heal a man or forgive sins? But since you guys can't see it and you're gonna argue with me, uh, be healed also. Christ is understanding that the, the physical healing is important, but the forgiveness of sins is so much more important. Because if your sins are forgiven, your healing will be guaranteed at some point. It might just not be till the life to come. But notice what it's doing is it's taking the king's heart and reuniting it with God with this wonderful declaration of God's love, a declaration of God's care. Verses 18 and 19 saying, he's preserved my life, but why? Why is my life preserved? You know, is it so that I can live my best life now? Right, is it so that I can live on borrowed time? Is it so that I can get my to-do list done that I didn't have done? Is it so I can say the things that need to be said that I didn't say? Is it so I can feel the things that I need to feel that I didn't have a chance to feel? It's so that, verse 20, I will be in worship with the God that has made me. The Lord saved me. We will play my music on stringed instruments all the, house of our, all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. It, it's, to be in, it's to be with God, to be in union with him, in communion with him, in fellowship with him, in relationship with him. It's reconciliation. And if you kind of miss that at the end of Hezekiah's psalm, the Lord then brings that idea back out in verses 21 and 22. This kind of weird, miraculous ritual is used to heal him and to prove the time where he can go back into worship. But interestingly, your difficulty is to turn your heart to God, is to show you that he loves you, it's to give you encouragement, it's to reconcile you to God, it's to create worship, it's to bring union with the Lord. Now, I am thankful. This is not the only tool in God's arsenal. That would, that would be very wearisome, I think, if the only tool that God had to use to teach us was grief. But it is important that we remember it is one of them. So when you are in grief, whether your season be great or small, Please be reminded, the Lord is doing something. And he's already explained to you what his heart is in the matter. Behold, it is for your welfare that you have any and all of your bitterness. And in fact, he's gonna deliver you at some point, maybe not in this life, maybe in the life to come, and to even deliver you from your sins. Now, What do we do with that as a church? Just briefly, 
maybe not generic application, but more specific application. Um, Friends, again, we have a lot of folks right now, by God's mercy, that seem to be living on the far extremes of both ends of that spectrum. Some that have the blessings of God that are so tangible, uh, that are so overwhelming that they kind of can't count them. Right? The cornucopia of God's blessing is just blowing out all sorts of fruit and vegetables for them, and they can't, it's overwhelming. At the same time, there are a, a lot of dear saints in our midst where their days are spent a little bit more frequently curled up next to the wall, grieving the bitter loss that they're having to face. And I would say maybe one kind of tender application for us is let's be intentional about how we interact with each other for that. I think most of us probably kind of navigate through church on a Sunday morning and we just navigate like, oh, I get to see my friends or if you're a guy, I get to see my buddies or, you know. And we don't tend to think about the fact that every moment Every conversation you have here, every interaction you have here, you're interacting with somebody that's either probably overwhelmed with the blessings of God or overwhelmed with the grief from God. And we don't know what to do with that. And so some of us kind of get awkward and panic and just, the weather's nice outside and then go run to get, you know, pretend like we have to go to the bathroom or something instead of actually engaging and giving encouragement and to say, I'm so sorry, and to give a hug when a hug is needed or a handshake when a handshake is needed or prayers when prayers are needed or simply a smile when a smile is needed. But to help one another bear those burdens or even to celebrate those joys. I think that's one thing, is to be a bit perhaps more intentional about being a body that encourages. I would say, you know, again, having been here a number of years now, that the Lord has been very kind to us. There are many things that we do very, very well, and I can't tell you how thankful I am to be the pastor of this church. I talk regularly, I think it's just the best church ever warm, welcoming, loving, receiving, I am going to go out on a limb and say I don't think encouraging is in our list. I'm just going to be candid. I, I don't think that actually describes Christridge. We're, we're, we're affirming, we're, we're welcoming, we're loving, we'll do anything to help you if you tell us. But I don't tend to think we excel at, at encouragement. perhaps something that we need to think about a bit more intentionally. Secondly, maybe reflect this even in our prayers a little bit, where sometimes I think even in how we pray, we start at verse one and we jump directly to the end and we forget to pray for all the good things in between. Now, I'm very thankful. I'm the recipient of those prayers in many ways, more probably than just about anybody else. 
And so I'm thankful to be able to, you know, have received the blessings that y'all have prayed for. But maybe let's make sure that we're not just praying for difficulty to go away, but for the Lord to use it for the good things in between. Not just that we pray that sickness would be healed and just go away, or that we would be victorious over these things and it would just go away, or that we would just move on and it go away, but maybe that we would also pray that the Lord would do something through that, that we would be built up in knowledge and love. Why? Because the reality of the matter is, is if you're on the high end of life right now, it's not gonna stay that way forever. And if you're on the low end of life, it's not gonna stay that way forever. But we're all gonna have seasons of suffering. And we all need to be ready so that we can praise our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Forgive us for our sin. Give us hope in your care. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.